Hello and welcome to the Canadian Jewish Schmooze. I'm Alex Rose. And I'm Michael Freeman. And today we've got our guest, Kinnert Kim Dubowitz, who's a yoga instructor and teacher's trainer. Kinnert, could you tell us about your master's degree and what your thesis was? Sure. Um, I did a master's degree in expressive art, dance movement therapy. And so I started to look at how does dance inform Judaism and how does Judaism inform dance? Right. So we're going to be discussing that with Kinnert. Very excited for that conversation. And just as we have Jews interested in the East, we also have a segment on the East interested in Jews. So today we're going to be asking, do Jews really need to worry about China's infatuation with Judaism and Israel? But before all that, we're going to be updating listeners on a couple of stories that we've been chatting about uh, the last couple weeks. Uh, it's been a bad week for Jews in court, the West Bank wine story and the Shemini Atzeret election story, both uh, those Court cases have come in, and Jews are not going to be happy with the results. So we're going to start on this subject. Alex, how do you feel about the news? Well, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't point out that it was also a Jew who started the Israel wine court case. Yeah, it's fair enough, fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. Um, for, for listeners who uh, have not listened to all, what, eight, nine, ten episodes of this podcast, shame on you. It's very easy to digest right now. Binge on every episode. <laughs> you may remember around six weeks ago, we brought in Ron Silek, who had written an article about a court case that wanted wines made in the West Bank to say they were the product of the West Bank instead of Israel, which they said at the time. So we just got the results from that court case. And what was the ruling, Mike? Yeah, so because they were uh, actually created in, in wineries in uh, settlements in the West Bank, the uh, federal court judge ruled that to label them a product of Israel is, quote, false, misleading, and deceptive. And the reaction from the Jewish community and the BDS community has been everything you think it has been. <laughs> the the other uh, court case, just to do these double time, our most recent episode was about Shmini Atzeret, the Jewish high holiday, which conflicted with the upcoming Canadian federal election. There was a lawsuit uh, petitioning the Elections Canada to change that date. And Elections Canada came back and said, no, we're not going to do that. So those are two pretty big uh, court cases in the Canadian Jewish world. I can't say I'm surprised by either of them, to be honest with you, particularly the election one. I didn't think we ever had a chance of getting that one changed, frankly. Uh, yeah, you think they would have changed it already. It's, you know, they wouldn't have waited this long till a few months ahead when they knew it was coming over a year in advance. Yeah, I mean, he has, he has just no impetus to do it. Uh, he being uh, Stefan Perrault, the, uh, the the chief electoral officer. Kinnera, do you observe Shmini Atzeret? I do. Have you thought about this election issue at all yet? Um, I haven't so much, no. Um, I saw it in the paper. It did kind of disturb me for a second. Um, but I'm just, you know, we're used to being marginalized Orthodox Jews. So <laughs> it, it felt familiar to me, and I didn't think that we had a chance. We're not... Yeah overly represented mm -hmm. in this community. Uh, the the thing that I think is upsetting a lot of people in the community as well, we were we heard from a lot of members of the community last uh, last episode, is a lot of people were hoping for at least some kind of compromise, some sort of additional polling day or, um, I don't know, additional outreach. And Elections Canada has hinted at something like that, but there's been absolutely no specific plan of action, no additional polling. I don't think they're going to do anything differently. I think we'll see lower than average Jewish turnout, uh, will it affect the election? I, I don't mean, know. It might affect a riding or two. It, 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 there's it, a chance. We'll have to see what the results are and, and how few. But it's also just, it's not about the results of the election. I think it's just about people's democratic right, right to yeah. vote. That's <laughs> you know, right. Even if it doesn't affect the results. Your right to vote in an election where 
Well, maybe your maybe your vote will affect anything. Maybe it won't. I'm a pessimist. I don't think anything we do matters. <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> I'll stop talking now. Uh, the <laughs> the uh, the West Bank wine story. Are you surprised by this decision? No, I mean I remember we were talking about it last time. Part of it was like whether how much jurisdiction the courts had to tell the um, body governing the labeling to to. Um, change its ruling. I remember that was part of the issue. But in terms of whether or not Canada recognizes the West Bank as something separate from greater Israel uh, and how that should manifest in terms of labeling, um, I think this makes sense. It seems kind of harsh, the wording they used, but I think it is... It's incredibly harsh. ...technically deceptive in the sense that like uh, a lot of people, or at least... I don't know if deceptive is the right word, but I think labeling it as West Bank is more accurate. I think what's telling about the case is that the judge very explicitly said uh, that they do not want to get into the politics of it. This is a labeling. They really tried to reduce it to a labeling issue, which Mm -hmm. truthfully it is. This does manifest also in other things besides issues like this. Like, for instance, I remember when Meryl Streep got in front of the Academy Awards and she went um, to each you know actor that was not from America and mentioned their she was talking about Trump and she was mentioning their names and, and where they were from and she said the country of every place but when she got to Natalie Portman she said she's from Jerusalem she wouldn't say Israel so at hmm. what degree are we going to get to where we can't say anything's from Israel anymore I think that's a fair concern. I think in, in this very with, with with the law with cases like this, I think you have to be really specific, and that's what the judge tried to do. Uh, which is why, uh, just to read a bit more of the reading to, to give a little context here, uh, the judge says there are a few things as difficult and intractable as Middle East politics, and the presence of Israeli settlements in the West Bank raises difficult, deeply felt, and sensitive political issues. However, one peaceful way in which people can express their political views is through purchasing decisions. To be able to express their views in this manner, however, consumers have to be provided with accurate information as to the source of the products in question. That's the, the fun. It, it's upholding the right for people who want to go the BDS route. Not just to, BDS. Not just BDS, but, but the opposite too, right? To, to, but no, because it wouldn't even... Because it's not really like it's a settlement. It's still an Israeli settlement in but the West are, Bank. So are other countries anyway. held to this standard? Like when we're talking about other um, parts of the world that, like, does Taiwan say product of China or product of Taiwan? Or well, Taiwan's its own country. No, I'm talking about right. like countries where there's lands that are disputed, disputable. Do do they have? The, are they applying the same rules to other countries I as would, they are to Israel? That's a very important question because Israel is often held to a standard differently standard. than other countries, and that's the question that we have to ask here. I think. Always Israel is held to a double standard. I don't think it's in, it, it's in everything because Israel is Israel. Uh, it's an interesting question. I don't know what the answer would be. If, if a product is made in Kashmir, is it going to be a product of India or a product of Pakistan? Likely India, uh, if anything. Or would it just say product of Kashmir? I actually don't know. Right. So that's a really important question For sure. to figure out. I, I think part of the problem with this is like the government itself isn't so motivated to investigate. So it just relies on individuals bringing it to the attention of the various bodies. I feel like this one really could have gone either way too, depending on how the judge leaned, because it, the the backstory uh, for anyone who, who, again, is sort of tuning into this dialogue now is that initially the Palestinian supporter brought it to the attention of, of I think, the Canadian uh, uh, food label, or, or the LCBO it was. LCBO said, oh, no, no, this is, this is wrong. It shouldn't be product of Israel. They took it off the shelves. Then the supporters came to the LSBO and said, actually, this should be very good. And LSBO said, oh, oh, oh you're, you're absolutely right. Sorry, we made a mistake. We have to put it back on the shelves now. And mm-hmm. it just, it became this very, like, 
oh crap, we're pissing off everybody. I'm just, I don't know what to do. It, it, it was a very like wishy-washy could go either way situation. I feel like the the court, the the judge's um, decisiveness in this is, if nothing else, at least refreshing in that she just took a stance. I mean, a stance had to be taken. Otherwise, this this uh, middle ground is is just purgatory. All right, so Kinnaird, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me, Alex. Um, so just to give a little bit of background, I interviewed Kinnaird for a story I wrote about Jews and yoga for our health and wellness magazine that I think is coming out at the end of August. And I just found so much of what you had to say so interesting that I wanted to invite you on the podcast. Maybe we could start with the idea that you described to me of how Judaism transformed when we were exiled from our own land millennia ago. Sure. Um, so part of my thesis that I wrote for university, um, I was very interested in figuring out why Jews were what I would call more cerebral and disconnected from their bodies, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, why there's all these other sort of traditions that have all these like movement techniques that are very spiritual and how come in Judaism we don't so much have that mind-body kind of connection. So I started to do some research and um, one book that was very inspirational to me was a book on Israeli dance by Fred Burke, who was like a, um, a well-known American Israeli he was American and he um, went to Israel and he did a lot of Israeli dance and he was a choreographer. Um, and he talked about the sort of the exile of the body, the Jewish body, so to speak, so that when Jews were during the second uh, temple period um, expressing their Jewish tradition, there was a lot of body movement involvement. So like, for instance, in the temple, there was a lot of worship that was not just um, prayer, like we see in synagogue today, but actual, you know, tambourines and drums, and there was physical movement and expression. We had also, we were an agricultural people, so we were very much part of the land. We were doing pilgrimages. Um, we had a lot of um, King David, like references in the Torah themselves. We have King David dancing at the Ark, right? We have Miriam dancing with her tambourine. We have the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, lifting his arms up in a gesture of blessing. So gesture was part of Judaism. And even in um, Jewish prayer, we actually do have a number of Jew like movement gestures that are even today in Jewish prayer, but a lot of people don't even do them so carefully in their in their in their divine <laughs> um, conversation with God, right? So the question is like, what happened? Why why do why wh what happened to all this movement stuff? Why are we just sort of in our heads in Judaism? First of all, we we lost the land. When you lose the land, you lose your space, you lose your body. But when you get put in a ghetto, right? When you're oppressed and you um, are being oppressed by the, the people around you, you are constrained to small spaces. We are now in synagogues, in small little temple places. We're not able to go out there and express our Judaism in this sort of physical way. And we became a people of the book. We were a people of the land, and then we got thrown into exile, and then we became a people of the book. And so that, that created a very kind of intelligent, sort of um, cerebral Jewish kind of expression, but it, it became disconnected from the body. And there were many periods in history where um, Jews also tried to revive this physical relationship to Judaism, as an example, the Hasidic period, where there was this idea that, you know, you'd stand, like Hasidic, um, men, Hasidic men, would stand on a table and jump and dance and express their divine relationship to God. When was this Hasidic period you're talking um, about? Good question. I don't have the dates <laughs> exactly. But the Hasidic period, the revival of the Baal Shem Tov, who started the Hasidic movement, started the idea of storytelling, dance, expression, joy. It was joy, basically, simcha. If I remember my uh, chat 
Jewish history teaching properly. The Baal Shem Tov, I think, was the 1700s. And I remember kind of likening him to to Protestantism and Christianity, where he's like, there doesn't always need to be a middleman between the um, believer and God. And, and he gave people permission to kind of have that divine joy themselves, wherever they happen to be. They could be working on their farm and still find opportunities to express their love for God. Is, is that, is, sorry, is that, is that why Hasidic weddings are such like wild dance parties? Absolutely. Definitely. The yeah. other, and the other thing that I thought of when you were talking about it, trying to return to the land, I don't know if I don't want to interrupt your yeah. uh, your, your lecture here, but yeah. the first thing I thought of was the labor Zionism. Well, I was getting there, yeah. There you go. <laughs> so I was talking about the first period where Jews were um, lost the land, right, post um, Second Temple period exile, and then there's this Zionism coming back to the land, and at the time when Jews came back to the land, we had um, the Rav Cook, who was the chief rabbi at the time, and the Haredi uh, movement was coming to Rav Kook, who himself was Hasidic, and saying to him, you know, Rav Kook, look at all these Jews. They're getting so into physicality. They're getting so into their bodies. And Rav Kook said, yes, this is, this is good. This is good. This is because Rav Kook thought he was a very positive thinker, and he saw that whatever was happening in the secular Zionist movement was one step closer to the Messianic. He said, that's, everyone's building the infrastructure for the messianic, so to speak. Um, people who are against, um, in, in the movement, the anti-Israel movement, um, particularly amongst scholars, amongst academic scholars, would call this return to the body a masculinist movement amongst Jewish men, that because the idea that um, Jews in Europe that were more like not so physical, you know, the, like the, the European um, Hasidic Jew, who was not so um, um, physical, right? More skinny, like, bent like nebish, over, nebish, nebish nerdy, whatever. Sure. <laughs> so that to them is it's often equated with like a more feminine kind of male because he's not aggressive, right? As, a, as a non-aggressive nebish Jew, I take I'm, extreme offense to that. <laughs> hmm. Not that there's anything wrong with being feminine. I embrace my feminine side, yes. but I also don't like the implication. Yeah, so that's that's there is scholars that talk about this and they talk about how the idea of returning to the physical Jew amongst men and women in Israel is is an, is an aggressive, masculinist, kind of, you know, alpha male-inspired kind of um, Jew. I do remember, um, you know, after we first spoke, Kinnaird, and I said to you, Michael, that I was going to invite her on the podcast, I, I relayed a little bit of our conversation, and you were like, oh, so is that, I think you said something along the lines of, oh, so is that why, like, Israelis now are, um, you know, you see, you have this... Was it you that I said this to or someone else who said that? I have no idea. You have to finish this talk. Someone's like, okay, well, I, th I thought maybe you would remember. <laughs> uh, something like, oh, so is that why you see so many Israelis who are kind of like, I don't remember if you used the word hippy-dippy, but like. I did use the word hippy-dippy. Yeah, okay. This was me. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you're like, yeah, you just see them being more in touch with the land and in touch with themselves. And uh, I don't know. Could you elaborate on that a bit? Oh, I think that's basically it. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, I think one of the big differences between uh is Israelis and diaspora Jews is that Israeli Jews are, are are loud and proud and and there's also a kind of openness of being emotional. The thing, even the thing you just said about masculine versus feminine, is kind of interesting because it just, it strikes me that Israelis Israelis don't see showing emotion as as a feminine thing. You see like burly men, you know, crying. Right, often. but I think and what you're comparing, I think what you're comparing is Israelis to Torontonians because Torontonians tend to be 
less emotionally expressive. No but if you go to, you know, places in America or other countries, you know, Argentina, you go to South American countries, you know, there are people who are also more, like, you know, more emotionally expressive cultures. I think what you're looking at maybe might be the Toronto Jew versus the... There's no, um, there's no doubt. The Israeli um, Jew. I, I don't think it's exclusive to North Americans. I think Europeans are also similar to that. But it, it's it's not just the emotional openness, but also there's a kind of crunchiness. To, there's right. the, to, to right. For sure, for <laughs> to sure, for sure. Right? Yeah, there's a big there the... crunchy movement in Israel. That's exactly where I found my <laughs> my Jewish connections. Um, living here as a granola crunchy Jew in Toronto, I always found myself very not able to connect to being Jewish for many years of my life. And then when I went to Israel, there was this amazing revelation, like, wow, I could live you know, a Torah observant life and be a granola crunchy, that's great. <laughs> yeah. And so I don't um, think we have that, that we don't have that Venn diagram uh, connecting here. Right. Much. And I do think that what you're trying to get to is there is this connection between the land, right? So there, the, the connection between being on the land and being more um, natural, so to speak, which I want to tie into, you know, yoga. Yoga is a way to um, connect and be more natural. It's a naturalist kind of movement. Uh, so let's let's just sort of clarify some of the, the the coming to yoga thing a little bit. I feel like we've talked a lot about the the philosophical and the theoretical. Just because I don't I don't know much about about your work. You are currently a yoga instructor. That's right. I'm a, I'm, not, I'm not only I'm a yoga instructor, and I also run a yoga teachers training course, um, which certifies people to be yoga teachers in Israel, the U.S., and Canada. I've I have courses in New York. I have courses in Israel, um, regular courses in Israel that have been running for nine years, and then also in Toronto as well. Wonderful, yeah. and, and and so what what got you thinking about yoga? I, I understand you mentioned when you went to Israel, you started thinking about uh, Judaism in a more sort of connected way. But where did yoga come into your life? Uh, so when I I mean I was always a dancer. I was a competitive gymnast, and uh, actually when I was seventeen years old, I ha I started having grand mal seizures out of the blue that happened completely out of nowhere, and I um, rather than going on you know drugs that I felt were detrimental and I'm not against all medication for all epileptics by the way um, but for me it was not it, I just felt like I could take control of it in a, in a more healthy natural kind of way so I started to learn about yoga and understanding about how to relax the body and become um, more conscious person about how I move and how I live and how I live with stress I basically healed myself from epilepsy so you've been doing yoga uh, for for many many years and you started teaching at what point so I'm right now. I'm 46, and I start. I started yoga at 17. Um, started teaching when I was 22. I never like asking specific ages, but this is very helpful. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. I'm totally fine with my age. Um, <laughs> 22. I've, I've been practicing yoga since I was 22, and then you know it was interesting as I was becoming orthodox and then becoming a yoga teacher. It was like, oh, okay. So now how do I resolve this sort of you know uh, desire to be an observant Jew and a yoga person? How did you resolve it? Because that's something I want to talk about, too. Right. So um, I did a lot of research. I looked into this very thoroughly. I'm in two worlds. I'm in the yoga world. I'm in a yoga world amongst Jewish people who feel there's absolutely no distinction between yoga and Judaism, um, yoga spirituality, Hinduism, Eastern paths and Jewish paths to them all lead to the same place. They all lead to to consciousness, so to speak. So what's the difference, right? You can be a yoga, a yogi and a Jew and you can, you know, and, and you're going to the same place. You're, you're, you're Leonard Cohen Jews. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, however, with extensive research that I've done amongst a halachic 
you know, Orthodox community, I've understood more the distinctions and understood that there are clear boundaries that I feel are important to maintain, while at the same time being able to totally be a yogi Jew. <laughs> then at, at what point did you start to bridge yoga with Judaism? So it's a question. Did I start to bridge yoga with Judaism? No. <laughs> uh, I, I <laughs> okay. But I did, what I did was I created a yoga teacher's training course that um, doesn't have any of the, the sort of um, Hindu dimensions of yoga that are problematic according to Judaism. Okay, so basically what we have in yoga, you have the eight limbs of yoga in, yo in the yoga path. And one of those limbs of yoga is asana and pranayama postures and breathing and then there's a whole bunch of other aspects of the yoga tradition that are more involved in meditation and um, worship divine worship so i took the asana pranayama aspects of yoga created a yoga teacher's training course which is true to the mindfulness of yoga it doesn't um it's not just purely physical there's a lot of mindfulness elements to it but i basically took out any of these other aspects of a teacher's training course because every yoga teacher's training course that exists out there not every but the ones at least that i've seen in my small scope of reality <laughs> um offer chanting um and all types of other sort of eastern kind of uh, dimensions in the program that would make a person who is Jewish who doesn't really want to practice that uncomfortable. So I started a course and I added some Jewish um, spiritual stuff into the program that could kind of help people to connect to aspects of being Jewish, but I don't combine Judaism and yoga. That's I don't be like, let's break into an Aleph pose or let's... Uh, and you have a, you know. a very important reason for doing so, right? Yes. I do. So my reason is that um, yoga is not Judaism. So these people who are doing all these like yoga, like Torah yoga things, you know, in their synagogue, like let's come to shul on Shabbat and do Torah yoga, are trying to basically Judaicize yoga, right, or yogify Judaism. And I believe that we can keep them very distinct and just pay respect to the nations of the world that have created things that we didn't create. <laughs> Other nations created things. We don't have to say it's ours. And at the same time, if, if, this pa if, the, if the yoga path offered me um, a spiritual life path to practice, I'm not interested. The thing that I like about that is the thing that always makes me a little skeptical of yoga. I, I, I don't take any yoga classes, but I watch YouTube videos for free in my living room. And... Uh, the, the thing that always kind of gets me, I don't go in for the like, for the spiritual stuff, for the namastes, for, for the stuff that feels a little bit, I, I shy away from the term cultural appropriation, but like it, it doesn't connect with me on a spiritual way. But I do go in for listening to your breath and stretching and like feeling your muscles move, like closing your eyes and focusing on the body and stuff. So I, I actually quite like that you've created those distinctions. What Rabbi Skoback, Rabbi Michael Skoback said to me, I said to him, Rabbi Skoback, is the mindfulness part of yoga, not the part that connects to like Hinduism, but just the mindfulness stuff that you get in a yoga class, which doesn't connect to a divinity. I asked him, is that kosher? Like, can I practice that as a Jew? <laughs> <laughs> and he said to me, yeah, Kinerit, it's kavana. What is kavana? For those of you who don't know what kavana is. Sounds Kav like it could also be a yoga term if I didn't know it came from a rabbi. Oh, okay. Yeah. So kavana <laughs> is a Jewish term that means intention in your action, right? So when you are praying. That also sounds like it could be a yoga term. <laughs> I mean, let's be real. Every, every spirituality, every religion has some kind of like focus, intention, meditation type, style. Oh, thing. no, of course. But 
But I mean, if you told me kavana was a yoga term meaning intention in your action, it, I would definitely not right. The word twice. sounds like it could be almost a Sanskrit <laughs> word, right? Yeah. Um, so kavana is, um, I mean, kavana or kavana, this word is used oh, there you interchangeably. Go. Maybe you've heard of kavana. Kavana. That one sounds. That more sounds Hebrew. more Hebrew. <laughs> so kavana um, is that you should, like I said, you should have intention in your actions, right? So we in, in Judaism, we're always we're saying that that's the cherry on the top of Jewish spirituality. Sorry, I just want to ask about um, those people who have created their own forms of quote unquote Jewish yoga, because I, I spoke to some of them. There was someone I interviewed. Uh, who created what he calls Kabbalah yoga based on, you know, what you said. The... I think he's my friend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, so Audi Goslin. Yes, Audi's my friend. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it seems like you guys take very different approaches to yoga and Judaism. So it's, it's, I didn't realize he was your friend. So do you guys have this dialogue? You know, I haven't, ha- I haven't sat down with Audi and had a full conversation about this with him. Um, I do trust Audi a lot mm-hmm. on, on his knowledge of Judaism and, and yoga. And, um, and so I, I'm supportive of, what Audie's doing. It's just that I do, I personally feel it's, for myself, mm-hmm. I feel it's not necessary to create a Jewish yoga practice. Mm-hmm. I feel like yoga itself, you know, speaks to me. And I, I, I value, like I said, I value the wisdom of the nations. And I want to give that, like when you talk about cultural appropriation, I don't really want to appropriate um, what they're doing and, and, and say it's Jewish. I, I prefer to just give them respect. <laughs> and at the same time, boundaries right boundaries for me as a jew to know i'm not going to just be completely liberal about it and say oh all of it you know including the hindu divinity aspect is is fine for me as a jew because really it it all points to you know the divine well judaism and yoga have very different judaism and 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 hindu spirituality have very different goals um and i don't believe that that that's the goal of the jewish uh, spiritual path so what's interesting when i spoke to adi he said there was some picture from maybe 800 years ago or something that he found and I, I didn't look this up but this was just something that he told me of someone doing uh like the pose of a hebrew letter or something like a, in a jewish text yes. and then yoga as we practice it today is not nearly that old right so it's just something that you said when we first spoke about um you know you want your jewish practice to be authentic um and you know you would feel like a lot of the way Jewish people use yoga now isn't authentic to to Judaism. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Maybe if I say anything that sounds wrong, let me know. But but I guess what I wonder is, is there a way for Jewish people to get back to some of the embodied Judaism that we lost in exile that in a way that is authentic? That's a really great question because we don't really have a tradition that we can draw back to. And if we are going to create one, we're making it up. Mm-hmm. And it basically, it's, it's an Eastern-influenced practice, right? Um, and so, th- I mean, the one thing I can say about, you know, embodied Judaism that is very traditional, like, for instance, in Shmona Esrei, in the Amidah prayer, there's, I said, there's all these gestural movements that we can do in Shmona Esrei um, that, are, that have beautiful teachings in them about how to use the movement moments in Jewish prayer to connect. Um, there's lots of like traditional Torah teachings about it, and yet nobody teach, is teaching them. And in fact, when I'm in synagogue and I'm taking my time to step three steps back because I'm walking away from um, the, the world, and I'm taking three steps forward as I walk towards the divine world, and when I bring my feet together, this is all traditional Jewish teachings, by the way. When I bring my feet together, it says you stand like an angel. You have one purpose. Like there's all these amazing moments. You bow forward. Um, you bend your knees in Judaism, in traditional Jewish prayer. The idea is you break yourself 
you humble yourself by bending forward and then you come back up as a humble person. I mean, that's an amazing moment in a gesture movement prayer. So I think that we don't have that um, being taught today. And I, I would say that if I'm going to go teach anything, I'd rather teach that than go do Jewish yoga. Yeah, that's what I, I was thinking that this whole time is, is that because we have this disconnect, this physical disconnect, uh, it does seem like uh, you're, you're, you're looking to yoga as a sort of a substitute, but it's not a, a, a true substitute. Right. It's not it's not from our tradition. And so you have to be honest with yourself and say, like, even if Adi, I, I hear that Adi has, the, Adi might know a lot more than me about this, mm -hmm. you know, historical connection to um, Jewish yoga. Um, so I can't say, you mm -hmm. know, for sure. I'd like to talk to him a little bit more about it. But um, for me, I, I from what I've researched, I haven't seen that we have a tradition of, of yoga <laughs> movements in Judaism. And therefore, um, yeah, it doesn't feel so authentic to me when I go practice that when when you in practice do you say namaste or l'chaim <laughs> <laughs> that's a really good question too um so you mentioned like you know you said namaste the, that namaste seemed like a an eastern spiritual moment for you but really namaste is just a um it's just an acknowledgement it's, it means from my inner light to your inner light and so some jews don't want to say it because they are scared that maybe it means something religious um to me it does it, it's just a nice acknowledgement sure so it seems like you know, what I'm hearing is that a lot of people look to yoga, not just for physical fulfillment, but spiritual fulfillment. And that's including people within the Jewish community. Um, and something that you brought up when we spoke also that I thought was very interesting is like, people are probably going there because that's a void that people have in their Jewish life. And I, not just people who are tangentially Jewish, but people who are born and raised in the Jewish community, people who go to Jewish day schools. Um, are you talking about yourself, Alex? I'm, I'm talking about myself i'm talking about a lot of people i mean you said like in both the orthodox and um not orthodox jewish day schools there seem to be these holes where people you know the the connection for individual to god or religion um you know it seems like it's missing i was just thinking it was my grandfather's yard sites are like a day apart so i was just in in uh shul this past weekend praying and i was just like i prayed so many times in school and i never knew why <laughs> Yeah, so Rabbi Skobak, when I, when I was speaking to him, he said that um, we have to understand the history of, you know, what, why Judaism today, um, especially in North America, is devoid, um, especially in the school systems, was devoid of spiritual uh, fulfillment. So he said, you know, after the Holocaust, Jews came uh, to this country and they're, fo uh, uh, a, we have to understand, Judaism was in like a post-traumatic stress. We had to be in survival mode with Judaism. So survival mode with Judaism was just teaching Jewish kids traditions right here's the traditions this is what you do we, we didn't people didn't have this knowledge right a lot of the generation who knew was killed <laughs> um, or many of them if they weren't in the Holocaust there was been so much assimilation over the years we've lost we lost a lot of the traditions so Jewish day school went into like this like you know kind of survival mode and was like okay let's focus on the traditions making sure that they know you know you, you wave three times to the candles when you light or you put a challah bread on the table these you know the what to do's but then the deeper kind of um, kavanah behind it was kind of not being taught so much, right? 
And um, and so we've lost a lot of that kind of stuff. So what happens is a lot of these Jewish Jews that are living, they, they go to yoga and there's this amazing like spirituality, this like thirst for spirituality. And, um, you know, if you're being taught that Judaism is just an ethnicity, a heritage, an identity, a culture, and not a rich, vibrant spiritual path, then you're going to be thirsting for spiritual growth. And you go to yoga and you're going to get it for sure. Because in a yoga class, there's these amazing moments of kavana, <laughs> intention and action uniting in one in the body. I know uh, we need to wrap up soon, but just for those of us who are interested in finding that Jewish spirituality, what does spirituality mean and what does it look like when you find it on the Jewish path? Um, so, well, first of all, Judaism's, like I said, kavana in Judaism, which is um, when the intention and the action unite and you have this mystical, amazing divine moment. It's the cherry on the top of Judaism because really, first and foremost, what's most important in Judaism is, first of all, moral action, right? So in other words, you could be a very spiritual person, but if you're not behaving proper, you're not treating people well, <laughs> you're not um, being a moral person, then that's uh, less important than your moral behavior. So first, you have to work on the level of action. However, if you're only working on the level of action and you're not um, also forming a relationship to, to Hashem, to the divine, then you're lacking in, in, in the deeper connection to, you know, and, and, and then if you continue to teach generations of people that and you don't, you deprive them of that, we're going to lose Jews to other spiritual paths. So um, in Judaism, there is a lot of beautiful teachings like, you know, from mystical Jewish sources and there are, um, there are yeah, there's like amazing, amazing mystical Jewish sources. You can learn um, Kabbalah, you can learn Hasidut, you can learn um, uh, Musser. Musser is like this really deep self-growth. You know, we took this, this buzzword, like personal growth, self-growth development. We have an entire system in Judaism called Musser about how to work on self-growth. And some rabbis are out there, um, you know, and some other uh, Torah teachers are out there teaching amazing personal growth workshops that are right from the source of Judaism. And I feel that many of this is, is not taught in school, unfortunately, and we as Jews think that it doesn't exist, but it does. Our last subject for this episode, do Jews really need to worry about China? Specifically, do Jews need to worry about Chinese interest in Jews? Uh, Alex, you you wanted to talk about this in particular. Why don't Why don't we start before before you get into your favorite part? <laughs> <laughs> Alex is champing at the bit, trying to trying to uh, read one part that he that really tickles him. Let's Let's give a, a brief overview of of who this guy is, why he's coming to Toronto. Professor Zhu Zin, who, um, according to our colleague Ron Selig's article, is likely China's leading scholar on Judaism in Israel, um, is going to be coming to speak in Toronto in a few weeks. And so Ron emailed him, and I, I don't think it's unique to China that a lot of Asian cultures are really interested in Judaism in Israel. They see that Israel is a thriving nation, and they attribute that a lot to Judaism. Um, so apparently, entrepreneurs have reportedly even relied on a Chinese edition of the Talmud to make business decisions. I know in South Korea, there's a really big culture around studying the Talmud. I, I lived in South Korea for two years. I, I never met a Korean who, who had ever met a Jew or expressed okay, maybe, interest. Maybe not a really big one, but it exists. I, it exists, I, I, I'm sure. There was like a New York article on it or something. <laughs> it definitely exists. Do you know anything about South I mean, Korea? I'm just familiar with that there is, there is the, uh, yeah, the number of Korean people who've been studying the Talmud as the secret to Jewish intelligence. That's what they claim. Oof. 
Yeah. That that okay. That's the segue, right? Because yeah. <laughs> should was... should we should should we be offended by that, or should we take it as a compliment? How would you be offended by it? Okay. Can I just read? The line from the article. Fine. One may not associate China with classic anti-Semitic tropes, but Zhu confirmed that Jews are widely believed to control banks and the media in the West and are unusually successful in business. In China, however, that's meant as a compliment, a sign of accomplishment. The impression of Jews is positive in general, Zhu explained. Had Jews achieved nothing or little, no Chinese will be interested in them. So basically it's like, yeah, right? You have, peop- you have, you have Chinese and Korean people looking at Jews and going, Oh wow! Look at look at those people! Like they're they're controlling the banks, and there's so few of them. Good job! We should do what they're doing. Like they're buying into a stereotype, a blatant stereotype that here in North America is considered quite clearly anti-Semitic, and, and that leads to harm down the line. Let's and not it can leave lead that part out because there's conspiracy theories, and right. and it leads to to, right. to threats of violence, but. In China and Korea, where there are extremely few Jews, I think five thousand to eight thousand. The article said, and they pretend they don't exist. <laughs> they literally I, like don't acknowledge Judaism as a religion. The official communist government. Right. This is yeah. all from Ron's article. Yeah, and uh, uh, there because there's there's no real threat there. It's 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 a novelty. It's tokenism, right? And it's like, oh, they're so successful. It's it's exoticizing the successful banker Jew. Right. People have create uh, like an obsession with Jews in like either a positive or a negative way, yeah. right? <laughs> it's like, is each one, I mean, you know, we think we, when we think about like the, the Christians United for Israel movement, right? And we say like, oh, should we, should we be happy that they're like supporting us or are they trying to ultimately convert us? Like we don't know whether or not this, this, uh, this support that we're getting is really going in a positive direction or a negative direction. So, uh, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what more there is to say about it aside from it's always it's always nice when you get attention for for like for being special for being the chosen ones. But you also don't want that much attention. You know, it's like, uh, hey guys, we got to set some boundaries here, international boundaries. Do we need to worry about this, Alex? What do you think? I'll say um, not imminently, but I think an anti-Semitic trope is an anti-Semitic trope, and trying to dress it up as a compliment. Uh, just diminishes the the negative effects that it can ultimately have on Jewish people in the Jewish community, especially in a global world when, like, you know, we don't want Chinese people believing these tropes and then coming to, you know, bringing them to other parts of the world where we're trying to eradicate them. It's not like these people will never leave their country. And, and like, he's coming to talk about it here, right? And, you know, I, I think... Yeah, but he's not going to, like, you know, poke a Jew in the belly and say, like, show me your gold coins. Like, I don't think it's going to go that far. He might not, but I'm just saying, like... Do you think he's he's interested in the money that Jews are making from this, from their from their skill? Or do you think that he's just interested in the fact that Jews um, have... Because not, it's not necessarily anti-Semitic to, to say that Jews are smart, because there were studies done amongst Ashkenazi Jews, and they discovered that Ashkenazi Jews do have a high level of intelligence and are like overly represented in Nobel Peace Prizes. It's we not, are, yeah. It's Jewish not, um, exceptionalism. Yeah, is Jewish exceptionalism true. is not like a necessarily, right, like a, a lie. There's yeah, some truth to I mean, it. Yeah, controlling the banks and the media one. Yeah, that part, that part <laughs> maybe could be taken out a little. Well, because it does become problematic w- w- when you don't know where to draw the lines, right? Oh, yeah, we are disproportionately represented in the media and in Nobel Prize winners and in banking. And, you know, you start to snowball this. Um, so I, I, I feel like any time an image of a people grows beyond facts and data, right. and it gets, that's, that's the stuff of, that's when it becomes a stereotype. And you judge every Jewish person by that image. I don't know, I've become much more sensitive to this kind of stuff since working at the CJN. Mm-hmm. <laughs> at the same time, you know, we get such bad rap amongst so many other nations in the world. Maybe it's not so bad to have some nations saying nice things about us. 
for sure. I mean, <laughs> hey, if 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 uh, China cons- uh, continues to consume Hong Kong, uh, I'm sure they will have no problem supporting Israel as well. <laughs> I do think it's um, an interesting idea, though, to to formulate um, connections between Chinese and Jewish people, because at least in North America, they actually live in a lot of similar communities to each other. Since we live amongst each other, might, it might be nice to to have somebody the- talking about the relationship between Chinese and Jewish people. Uh, do you remember the Tiger Mom article that came out like eight or nine years ago? There was, um, you know, there was this whole phenomenon about like a Chinese mother explaining why she was so strict on her kids. And then a Jewish mother responded being like, us Jews get the same results and we're not mean to our kids. That's basically what that was basically the tone of the article. It's like we give our children choice and they still thrive. Oh, my God. <laughs> that was <laughs> what I got from it. I also read it like almost 10 years ago. So take right. my memory with a grain of salt. I'm going to find that article. I'm going to link to it in the show notes <laughs> and uh, listeners can go straight there and read it. Thanks again, Kinnaird, for coming in. Really enjoyed our conversation today. Thanks for inviting me, Alex. If, uh, if people want to learn more about what you're doing, can they find it somewhere? Thank you. Um, yes, so www.kinnarityoga.ca or kinnarityogatraining.net. Both of those websites um, have information about my classes in Toronto, but also the yoga teacher's training course in Israel, New York, and Toronto. Wonderful. Well, we'll have some links to those as well on the, uh, on the website and in our show notes. Uh, as usual, this episode was edited by myself uh, and uh, hosted by me. Uh, I'm Michael Freeman. And I'm Alex Rose. Our intro music was by Vanya Juk. Our outro music is by Lache Swing. You can hear more CJN podcast goodness at cjnews.com slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye. Shalom. <laughs>